Welcome to Untangle, the podcast from Muse, the Brain Sensing Headband, and Five Star App Meditation Studio. I'm Patricia Carpus, your host, along with my co-host every other week, Muse co-founder Ariel Garten. We're wishing you all calm and peace as we go through this very scary coronavirus situation. Wherever you are, we hope you're taking good care of yourself. I've personally been listening to meditations in our stress and calm collections, and my two favorites for right now are Let Things Be by Ashley Turner and Love and Equanimity by Kate Johnson. And if you haven't listened to last week's podcast on how we can be more resilient during these times, you may want to check that one out. We are sending out giant virtual hugs to everyone. Now over to Arielle for this week's Encore episode. Today, I have an amazing guest, Dr. Lisa Moscone. She's a neuroscientist and a researcher on the extraordinary relationships between the brain and food. She's both extremely well-versed in the brain and how it works, so hear about her background of research in Alzheimer's and other work, and she also has a degree in nutrition. And so her particular area of expertise is understanding the intersection between the two. So today, Lisa is going to tell us all about our brain on food, what to eat, what to avoid, and how to supercharge our mental spaces. Welcome, Lisa. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. My absolute pleasure. Can you start by giving us a little bit of background on yourself and how you got into this work? Sure. My background is really that I, both of my parents are nuclear physicists, like both of them. (laughs) It's quite a thing. (laughs) Growing up that way was, was very interesting. And my mom used to teach nuclear physics to students then transferred to medicine and they went to work in nuclear medicine. So I was immediately drawn toward that field, which is really a code for brain imaging. And from a very, very early age, I really wanted to study the brain. I'm a little bit of a nerd, like <laughs> declare that like very openly self-declared uh, nerd. And I was really, really interested in the brain. And that's in part because my grandmother developed uh, Alzheimer's disease, the diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease when she was in her 80s. And then her two sisters also developed the same condition oh. and their brother did not, which was quite like, oh, so in my family, it really attacked women's brain, right? More than men's brain. And uh, my mom is super healthy. She's doing all the things I'm telling her to do. You know, she's not touching sugar. She's doing yoga. She's really big on yoga and meditation and uh, super healthy, but so I, I really wanted to have answers and come up with solutions. So I did a dual PhD in neuroscience and nuclear medicine, and then I transferred to. So I'm from Florence in Italy. I should have said that. Um, it's the beautiful accent. Oh, that's actually bizarre. It's it's a combination of Italian and French because actually French is my second language. So I know my accent is a little weird. It's <laughs> <That's> gorgeous. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so I, I was studying in Florence and then I transferred to NYU Medical College in um, NYU School of Medicine, actually, in New York City. And I, I finished my PhD here and I was really looking at genetics. Like I thought that your DNA was the cause of every, every evil, of all evil. And they really wanted to find out what kind of genetic factors were running in families and, and how brain conditions are transmitted to a person to the other. 
And then it turned out that um, the role of genetics is not nearly as predominant as we thought it was, as, as we thought it would be. And especially for brain diseases like Alzheimer's, really genetic mutations account for about 1% of the entire population. So it's really not nearly as, as predominant as, as we previously thought, which really led me to, to look at lifestyle and environment and everything else that is in our control and how that really impacts the brain. And what kind of training did you then get in nutrition? How did the nutrition aspect come in? Right after my PhD, I was hired at NYU, NYU School of Medicine, as an assistant professor in psychiatry, in this case. And I realized that none of us was actually prepared to give any advice about nutrition or diet or physical exercise, you know, for, for good matters. And so I went back to school. And I am now a board-certified integrated nutritionist um, and holistic healthcare practitioner from the Institute for Integrated Nutrition in New York and the Susui State University of New York. Just in so, case. <laughs> just in case, yeah. Just, just in case two PhDs was not sufficient. <laughs> yeah. So through your studies in nutrition, you discovered that there's really a lot that we can do to support our brain health by eating effectively. I heard a stat and it's supposed to be our brains are made up of 50% fat. But in your book, you talk about the fact that the brain's probably only about 11% fat. Yeah, it depends on how you think about it. Um, so as a scientist, I'm very interested in a brain that is alive, right? It's functioning, <laughs> it's, it's, it's there inside your head. And that's called total brain volume. And total brain volume is really, really mostly water. So 80% is water, 11% is fat, 8% I think is protein. And there's like just a handful of vitamins and minerals and glucose. If you take the brain out of a person and take all the water out, then you have a dry mass. Then the proportion of the nutrients obviously shift because you get rid of water and then about 50% is fat and uh, 45, 46% is protein and the rest is sugar, vitamins, and minerals. But and a real brain is mostly water. And the, the the key message there is that we have to replenish this water constantly because the body doesn't produce it on its own. And the brain is so, it's literally built on water. Every chemical reaction that takes place inside the brain needs water to occur, right? All the time when you see as a neuroscientist, when you see like uh, ATP is coming out and that's because acetyl coenzyme A was turned into using H2O. So water is really everywhere, and um, even energy production is based on water. You can't have energy inside your brain unless you have water. And the reason I'm saying that is that even mild dehydration can severely affect the brain and cause neurological symptoms. So even just a 2% water loss in the brain can cause uh, neurological symptoms like fatigue, dizziness, confusion, brain fog. And some brain imaging studies show you that if you are dehydrated, your brain literally shrinks and you don't want your brain to shrink. So going to the prescription then, how much water should we be drinking every day to avoid any amount of dehydration? The average person loses about the equivalent of eight glasses of water per day, just through perspiration, urination, just regular physiological functions. So those 
aim of eight glasses a day is a, is a good rule of thumb just to say that's the minimum that your body really needs just to maintain fluids all the time. And then it depends um, if you live in a very warm climate, which you and I do not. Sadly, <laughs> really unfortunately. No, but people who do need obviously to drink more water. If you're very physically active, you need more water. If you if you're taking medication, you need more water just to metabolize them faster. If you're aging, you need more water because what happens in older individuals is that the response, the feeling of thirst, the sensation of thirst, is actually suppressed in the brain as we get older. Hmm. Yes, and so many people who are over sixty. Uh, don't report feeling thirsty even when they're dehydrated. Just kind of lose insight on their own thirst level. So it's really important to keep hydrated. And what I want to underline is that not all water is equal, right? And the brain doesn't just need something wet. So <laughs> if you drink milk, it's not the same as drinking water. If you need soda, it's not the same as drinking water. If you're drinking coffee, it's not the same as drinking water. And most importantly, if you drink purified water, that's really not water anymore because all the electrolytes are gone. That's interesting. So most people who purify their water think that they're doing a service to themselves. Mm -hmm. How do you recommend people do drink their water? I think the question is, why do you purify it? So do you live in a place where water is incredibly polluted? Because if you do, then you have to purify it. So... If we're drinking purified water because we're concerned about toxins and impurities in the water and poisoning, then it's it's helpful to drink something else that is rehydrating. And that could be taking uh, rehydration salts, could be taking a mineral supplement, could be buying spring water instead of buying purified water. That actually would be the best thing. Um, even things like coconut water is very rehydrating. Aloe juice is very re rehydrating. So what do you consider to be toxic water? So you live in New York City. Do you drink New York City tap water? We actually have filters. We have a fancy under the sink filter that removes um, any trace of like heavy metal, for instance, but preserves the electrolytes in the water. And I am told that the water in New York is actually really good. And for me, when I moved from easily and they tried drinking tap water I was like oh dear what is this <laughs> so I got used to it but I occasionally I actually buy drink water I treat myself to actual good water <laughs> New York City tap water is actually some of the better tap water in the United States American. I heard I heard I was in Boston just recently and I am I would just I can't drink this I'm from the tap I was like no this is just not I just was just to my daughter, just do not drink it. We're going to go buy something better. Water is just so important. You, you need it. You need the electrolyte and uh, you need to keep your brain hydrated. Like th there were studies, like many studies showing, so like in a clinical trial type thing, like an experiment, where a lot of people uh, who were about to do a test measuring reaction times and processes speed. And some of them were given like an energy bar before the test, but no water. Some were giving an energy bar and water, and some were giving only water. And people who were drinking water performed just so much better than those who, who got no water whatsoever for hours prior to the test. So literally, just drinking a glass of water three minutes 
try it to a test, improve reaction time by like over 30%. That's amazing. Yeah. And it's so simple. And so many Americans are really dehydrated. There was a report from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention showing that at least 10% of Americans report drinking zero water on a daily basis. Like none. (laughs) We think distracted driving is an issue. Slow reaction (laughs) times due to dehydration. There you go. There you go. You never know. So what is your solution if you're drinking filtered water in order to have sufficient electrolytes? Mm, I would say something natural. Like I'm a big supporter of food versus supplements. I, I find any supplements that come from a lab have none of the potency of the nutrients that come from foods. So for me, I drink aloe vera juice every morning. And my daughter does too, she's three. I drink that every morning. I've been doing it for... I think 15 years. And for me, if I don't drink it for like one or two days, I really feel it. Like I don't drink coffee, even though I'm Italian. (laughs) But I drink that in the morning and then I'm fine. And so what do you suggest for nutrition for kids? So you, you referenced something interesting, which is we don't need to eat saturated fats into adulthood because we get all the saturated fats we need from birth up till teenagerhood. Um, and we don't need any more cholesterol than our brain makes at birth. So obviously what you'd feed a child might be different than what you'd suggest for an adult. So what can you tell us about the developing brain and the importance of nutrition and maybe some of the differences in nutrition to support it? One thing I want to clarify is that even as adults, we do need cholesterol and saturated fats for other parts of our body. It's just the brain that doesn't necessarily use it. So it just reconceptualizing those foods for something else than the red. Just, just, just saying it. Good clarification. So for children, it's different. Um, children do need saturated fat, especially if their brains are developing and neurons are forming because the saturated fat and cholesterol really provide a structure of the neuron and astrocytes where the omega-3, omega-6, you know, the polyunsaturated varieties are more for membrane mm-hmm. fluidity. So they really provide plasticity, whereas the stronger fat provides scaffolding. So cholesterol, the brain takes care of that on its own. It just doesn't come from the diet ever. Saturated fat instead is really important. So for my daughter, I make sure that she has access to really good quality animal foods. She loves her cheese. So I make sure that I get good quality cheese. Like I, I believe in organic food a lot, especially for women. Um, because many chemicals found in processed foods are actually xenoestrogens. They act like estrogens in the body, but in a negative way. Mm-hmm. So they really mess up our estrogens in a way that's been associated with very, very early puberty in girls and with, you know, men boobs, but also with increasing rates of cancers in women, especially breast cancer and estrogen-dependent cancers. So I'm really... I'm, I'm a big um, believer that safer is better. And so I go organic as much as I can. Obviously, I'm, I'm aware that it's, it's more expensive, but I, I think it's worth it, especially with kids. So I'll buy uh, grass-fed beef when she eats beef or free-range chicken when I give her chicken or eggs, grass-fed milk, sweet cream butter from the farmer market. So it sounds delicious. Uh, yeah, <laughs> she actually eats super healthy. She eats a lot of fish. 
breed a lot of fish here, in part because I'm Italian and in part because fish is really the best natural source of a very specific type of omega-3 called DHA, mm -hmm. which is actually um, the main brain fat. It's the most abundant uh, fat inside the brain that needs to be replenished all the time. And fish is really the only source, pretty much. It's the most abundant source. So if you eat a lot of plant-based foods, you get access to a different kind of omega-3 called ALA, mm -hmm. linoleic acid, that can be converted into DHA, but about 70% is lost in the transition or in the conversion. So vegetarians or vegans or people who don't like fish and don't eat fish um, really need to up their ALA to make sure that their brain have enough DHA. Going back to my child, she eats a lot of fish. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit more about fats. And I'll just sort of give an overview for everybody about fats in the brain so we can kind of have a context to it. So we've been talking about saturated fat, which essentially gets used to become the membranes of cells. So all of your cells have a little package around them, the membrane, and that's where you get the structural fat, saturated fats. Then both in the membrane and around the axons, around your neurons, you're going to have DHA. And so DHA, as you just said, has to be taken from an external source and it's often fish. There are two sources of DHA. You can either get it from a vegetable source where you're getting ALA that converts to DHA, but unfortunately it'll big loss, or you can get it directly from the source DHA, which is the fish source. Do you have fish? I love fish. <laughs> I love fish, but I'm now recognizing I do not eat a lot of it, but I take a lot of fish oil supplements. So I try to keep my DHA level somewhere around two to 4,000 mg of fish oil per day. Um, mm -hmm. I've heard that that's what you should be aiming for. And I take high DHA fish oil. Mm -hmm. So what, what was your recommendation for how much fish oil one should be taking daily? How much omega-3? It's really based on research. I think if you look at the government, they have different guidelines. But the research on brain scans and brain aging uh, kind of point to the fact that for optimal cognitive performance, also sustained over time, four grams a day of omega-3 fatty acids, mostly DHA and EPA, seems to really make a big difference. So there are studies that looked at people over time and followed them for many years and showed that those who consume four grams and sometimes even more than that a day of omega-3 fatty acids have 70% lower risk of cognitive deterioration later on in life as compared to people who consume less than two grams a day. Wow. Yeah. So somebody who consumes four grams of DHA is going to have a 70% less chance of cognitive de degradation as they age compared to somebody who takes two grams, which you would still think is a significant amount. Yeah. Yes, and those are, these are not necessarily supplements. It's really the combined intake from foods and supplements. And, you know, when I read that, was like, well, four grams doesn't seem like a lot. And it's really not. It just takes like a, a piece of fish, you know, some almonds, maybe some extra virgin olive oil. So it's really, it's really about eating healthily throughout the day. It's totally doable, even just by eating right. Is really not nothing, nothing, it's not difficult at all. <laughs> make sure you do it. You're, yeah, make sure you do the it, numbers yeah. highly suggest. Yeah, 
Amazing. Let's talk a little bit more about fat. And I keep coming back to it because there's so many debates as to whether you should eat fat or you shouldn't eat fat. And, you know, do we eat saturated fats or do we avoid saturated fats? And I know you have some interesting thoughts on this. I hope they're interesting. Um, so I, I approach any question as a scientist would, like what's the evidence for one thing or the other. And um, fat is a very important part of, of the diet. There are three macronutrients, fat, carbohydrates, and protein. And somehow um, in popular science and in the nutritional uh, field, we tend to pick enemies, right? And, and a few years ago, everybody was vegan and nobody would, would touch animal foods, therefore really decreasing their fat intake to a minimum. Um, in the now, there were these super strict low-fat diets as well, whereas now everybody's going on very high-fat or ketogenic diet. So I think, I think those, are, those are kind of extremes. And the truth is probably somewhere in between. Right, that everybody's different and different people metabolize nutrients differently. So for some people, a high fat diet could be helpful. For some people, it could be a disaster. And it's really about knowing yourself and how your body metabolizes fat. And I think it's more important. And I, I was talking to Dr. Pertmuller the other day, the author of Grain Brain. Mm -hmm. And we clearly have different views on, on high fat diets, but in a very, in a very respectful way, obviously. And I was telling him my concern for women because, because of the estrogens that we have, women are just better equipped at burning carbohydrates than fat. Whereas men, because they have more testosterone, testosterone really burns fat that efficiently. So I was saying to him, I feel like men have an advantage in that department because you just have, um, your body is just engineered to process fat to your advantage. Whereas women's bodies are engineered to just take the fat and store it rather than burning it. And it's not as easy for everybody to, to really put it to good use. So I think, I think it's really important to talk about fat in some ways, but also quantity and quality uh, of your fat sources. Like at the clinic, a lot of our patients who come to us and, and say, oh, I'm doing this keto diet, they're basically eating bacon and cheese the entire diet, right? And that is not necessarily healthy. And then there are other people who, who are on high-fat diet and they're eating salmon and avocado. And that is much healthier overall. And you have some research in the book that talks about saturated fats and the impact of consuming saturated fats. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. Yeah, so, so the research shows that at least in the brain aging and cognitive health field, trans-saturated fats and saturated fats are not necessarily the healthiest fat for your brain. And so in large scale, population-based epidemiological observational studies, it was shown that people who consume 13 grams or more of saturated fat every day have twice the risk of cognitive decline as compared to people who eat half of that, so seven grams or less. Wow. Mm. Yeah. Now, that, of course, doesn't, doesn't take into account the source of the saturated fat, right? Does it come from bad quality animal foods? Does it come from vegetable oils? Does that make a difference? We don't know. What we know is that overall, 
if your diet contains more than 13 grams per day of saturated fat, you have a much higher risk of losing your memory as you get older or not finding words or developing cognitive impairment. And 13 grams, about what does that represent? I mean, it's not, it's not much. If you're eating high fat, uh, fatty foods like from animal products, then it's really easy to get up to 13 grams of saturated fat a day. I think everybody agrees that your diet should really include a lot of vegetables and fruit and smaller amounts of animal foods. Yeah, the tables are really turning. I was having lunch with a bunch of major biohackers, and this was an amazing lunch. There was Dave Asprey, JJ Virgin, Dr. Mark Hyman, like, you know, the heavy hitters of what you should be eating. And uh, the rest of us at the table just sort of sat back and watched what they were ordering and said, well, we'll take what they're taking. So we went for sushi because Dave's feeling was that rice that is cooled then reduces its glycemic index. So we were allowed to have sushi and sushi, of course, has lots of raw fish. And everybody's agreement was that you need to eat essentially a base of vegetables and meat on the side. So as much as you'd think that all of these biohackers are pro-paleo and, you know, just be consuming meat uh, amongst this table, it certainly wasn't the case. And from every conversation I've had with somebody who is well-versed in nutrition at the cutting edge, the feeling is large volumes of vegetables and everything else is the side. Yeah. Fiber, right? Really, I think everybody uh, would say that fiber is so important for you and for for your health overall. And fiber comes from plant-based food. No way. No way to avoid that. And now we'll take a little break for our sponsor, Zola, the wedding company that takes the stress out of wedding planning. You start by building a free wedding website personalized with all your details, photos, and stories, plus so much more. And the Zola store has a wide selection of gifts all in one place. Definitely check this out. And to start your free wedding website and also get $50 off your registry on Zola, go to Zola.com slash untangle. That's Z-O-L-A.com slash untangle. Now back to our show. So part of why fiber is so awesome is that it helps support your gut. Can we talk a little bit about gut? Yes. And so this is this is very interesting. So the way the same way the hormones are not usually associated with brain health, the same thing used to used to really happen for other parts of our bodies like our gut. And for many years, the, the connection between gut health and brain health was completely ignored in neurology or psychiatry. And now instead it turns out that um, the way you eat affects the health of your intestines and, and, and your digestion. And that, in turn, has a huge impact on brain health, especially for mood. So it's, there's quite a strong and consistent connection between your intestinal microbiome, right, the microbiome inside your, your gut, and uh, your mood. So there are good bacteria and bad bacteria. Usually you want to have more of the good ones and, and fewer of the bad ones. But sometimes, because maybe you're taking antibiotics or you're not eating correctly or you're sick or you have uh, Crohn's disease or any, any sort of GI disorder that kills the good bacteria, the, the balance is reversed. And when the bad bacteria take over, they have a really bad effect on the brain because they, they can kind of 
hijack the nerve that connects the intestine with the brain. And they're able to travel all the way back up to your brain and really um, affect the permeability of the blood-brain barrier. So basically, they open this gate. They're forcing some gates open that they shouldn't. And then the bacteria can get inside and a lot of other toxins and waste products can get inside your brain, uh, producing inflammation. And at the same time, they impact uh, the GABA system, mm -hmm. which is the calming, soothing system in the brain. And when that happens, people just feel anxious and moody and really stressed out and upset. So there's a strong, strong effect on, on mood. Indeed, it looks like bacteria in your gut actually produce GABA. And so they then influence the nerves to your brain, producing significant calming effects due to GABA in your stomach. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. I find in, in Western medicine, there's a tendency to, to look at the brain as something that's completely isolated to the rest of you. And everybody's so surprised when your stomach actually creates some changes in your brain. When your heart, uh, we say heart health, you know, a happy heart is a happy brain or a healthy heart is a happy brain. And everybody say, no, there's no way. Of course. I mean, the brain is in charge of every other organ, every other part of the body, but the rest of the body reports right back to the brain. And so these connections are, are constantly active. And if you have inflammation somewhere else, if you have a wound or, or if another part of you is affected, the brain will know and suffer as well, right? Yeah, Dr. Jim Doty was one of our guests on an earlier podcast. He's a neurosurgeon who is very mm. focused on the heart. And his point was that the heart has more innervations to the brain than the brain has to the heart. There you go. So knowing that gut bacteria is so significant to the functioning of our brain, what would you recommend that we eat? I think for optimal gut health, there are three nutrients that are really important or three, three food groups, uh, fiber, Mm -hmm. probiotics and prebiotics okay so probiotics everybody knows about those are the live bacteria that you find in yogurt that you find in fermented vegetables and basically they um they go inside your intestines and just replenish um the environment with good live bacteria the tricky part is that they don't necessarily stay there Right, so there has to be a favorable environment, like a host environment that is that is able to really take care of them and to be inviting to them so that they, they will stay. And that environment is created by fiber and prebiotics. So prebiotics are oligosaccharides, so they're a very specific kind of carbohydrate that is not digestible. So it doesn't get uh, broken down in the stomach, but it just flows right down to the intestine. And that's specifically food for the good bacteria. And prebiotics come from foods that have a sweet aftertaste, but they're not necessarily sweet, like onion, beet, some root veggies, artichokes are really good. Asparagus. Asparagus, thank you. Oh, uh, grains in general um, are good sources. And then fiber obviously is needed just for, for proper appropriate uh, digestion. And so elimination of waste products that really help clean your entire body and, and also get rid of the bad bacteria or toxins. And what are your thoughts on eating yogurt to support your probiotic health? I think it's a very good idea. It, it, it's a very healthy food. It's good for you. It's usually um, depending on uh, the source of yogurt. They can have also a really good amount of protein. 
and could be very highly digestible. So a lot of people have issues with lactose from milk. They have a hard time digesting dairy. But a goat milk yogurt is actually much more easily digestible and contains more protein over fat than yogurt made with cow's milk. So I eat goat milk yogurt when I eat yogurt. I like it. And I give it to my daughter as well. You have an amazing study in the book that references 25 women who were given a cup of yogurt each day. And can you tell us what happens after this cup of yogurt? Yes, their brains get better on functional MRI. They found out that they found an improvement in mood and alertness that was really visible inside their brain using this uh, technique that measures um, changes in oxygenation levels in the brain called functional MRI or fMRI. That was really just a couple of yogurt for uh, weeks, just another weeks, right? Maybe two, three weeks or something like that. So it was a very fast improvement. Yeah. And I remember in the specific study, they were shown images that were distressing. And the woman who had eaten yogurt said that they had less distress upon seeing these difficult images than women who hadn't. So they're essentially calmer. <laughs> yeah. The yogurt calms you down. So that, that's good. Good to know. So yeah, amazing. A cup of yogurt actually produces functional changes in your brain that can be demonstrated on an fMRI. Yeah. That's crazy when we think about the impact that food can have. Yes. Yes, yes. Now that is true. That is true. There are many examples of that. And I'm particularly interested in like long-term effect. But fMRI is really interesting for research purposes. It's not diagnostically useful in some ways, because it really depends on the day and the mood and what they're doing in the morning, what they're doing in the afternoon, what kind of images they're showing to you. Um, whereas the, the kind of methods we use are more um, uh, permanent in a way. They show the way your brain is on average throughout the day. So they're not activation dependent. It's something more like your actual brain signature. And that's what we, that's what we look at. And we find very clearly that depending on, on the diet, the brain literally ages and changes in ways that can be really good and really bad. Wow. So yeah. can you give us an overview of what a good brain diet looks like as opposed to a bad brain diet? Yes, for sure. Um, so I have one picture in the book that shows two different brain scans. It's at the very beginning. And that was very striking to me. It was actually when I really started looking into diet and brain health. So uh, if you look at, let's say, the Mediterranean diet and the Western diet. So the Mediterranean-style diet is considered to be one of the healthiest diets on the planet for the heart, the brain, the pancreas. It's associated with a low risk of Alzheimer's or cardiovascular disease or diabetes or obesity. Every, everything works when you're, when you're eating like... Um, we do <laughs> in the Mediterranean region. And so people who follow that kind of diet, which is really high in vegetables and fruit, uh, rich in fish and whole grains, and low in animal foods overall and sweet and refined sugars. Of course, there's no processed food or minimal amounts of processed food. Uh, the brains of people who have been following the diet for a while look really young, like uh, their ventricles are nice, nice and tight. Their brains really heat up the entire skull. There's very, there's a lot more brain than fluid. And if you look at specific parts of the brain, like the hippocampus or uh, the internal cortex, which are really important for memory, those are really 
and as big as chubby as they can be. <laughs> and then if you look at hundreds of people who are following like a Western style diet, so a lot of processed foods and soda, uh, lots of meat and dairy, usually low quality uh, food, not a, not a lot of attention to its quality perhaps, and uh, lots of refined grains. Their brains look so much older. So like if somebody's like 52 and they have this, we publish this all the time, for people who are in their early 50s, those in Mediterranean diet look like really good brains, a healthy looking brain. In the brains of people of exactly the same age, same gender, same educational level, same cardiovascular risk factors, the same even APOE genotypes, the same uh, genetic risk factors for dementia or for cognitive decline later in life, their brains look like they're so much older, like five, 10 years older, easily. And we constantly flag this ventricular enlargement. There is um, atrophy of the hippocampus. You can see that the fluid is taking over and the brain is getting smaller. And, and, and it, it's really constantly diet that comes up on top as, as the predictor of these changes, much more than age or gender or education or diabetes, you know? Wow. Mm. So diet is one of the main predictors as to whether a brain is going to look healthy and plump and young or shriveled and crenated and old? <laughs> yes, in, in research, yes. In, in my hands, definitely. Usually it's the one factor that always comes up on top. And we look at a number of things. Like I can mention age, gender, education, but we also look at intellectual activity and physical activity, like um, aerobic exercise, a lack of aerobic exercise, just moving throughout the day, sleep. Uh, we look at diabetes, we look at metabolic syndrome, we look at um, we look at homocysteine, which is a it's a market for cardiovascular disease. We look at BMI, we look at B vitamins. I mean we measure so many parameters and when you all you just put them all inside a statistical model that tells you which of all these factors is, is the best at explaining or predicting something in the brain, diet always comes up on top. And that's really accounted for everything else. Wow. So how should we eat? Give us uh -huh. a prescription. Tell us what to do. Tell us what to eat. <laughs> how do we keep our brains chubby? <laughs> so I, I think um, the best way to describe it is that you need food to really support brain health. And foods that support brain health are very rich in anti-inflammatory foods and antioxidant foods in B vitamins. I, I would say these are the main uh, criteria. So you need a lot of green leafy vegetables in um, like spinach. I'm going to say kale, although I don't love it, but kale is a good one. Uh, cabbage of all sorts. Um, broccoli are always very good for you. Dandelion greens are actually some of my favorites. Have you? try them they're, they're very a little bitter, bitter. They're, it's a little bitter taste. Bitter, yeah. which means it's also really good for your microbiome right for your bacteria bitter food is usually really good for for the intestine and they are very very rich in um, antioxidant vitamins and minerals they're very rich in fiber so these are really good for you then fish like we said is really very important i would say low glycemic fruit is really helpful like berries Everybody eats blueberries, but actually blackberries have a higher antioxidant capacity than blueberries. 
her gooseberries as well. Mm-hmm. And um, a specific type of, type of gooseberries called amla. They're Indian. Oh, yeah, the Indian. Yeah. Amla. They're incredibly powerful antioxidants. Yeah. AMLA, amla. Yeah. Yes. So that's what we should eat. Now, what should we not eat? Fast food. Actually, whenever I'm asked, like, what, what, what should I eat for my brain? I usually say, well, the point is that don't eat processed food. If you don't eat processed food, then pretty much anything else will do, you know, in different amounts. You can think about it or, or be more careful. But processed food is really the worst kind of food one can eat. It, it's high in everything that's bad for you, for your heart, for your intestine, for your brain as well. Uh, processed food until maybe a year ago, uh, could actually contain trans and saturated fat, trans fat. And that is the worst type of fat one can ingest. There are, there are plenty of studies showing that people who consume just two grams of trans fat every day have twice the risk of cognitive loss and a neurodegenerative disease like Alzheimer's as compared to people who eat less than one gram a day. And two grams is nothing. Two grams is nothing. Wow. Okay. So avoid processed food. Can we talk about processed food a little bit more? Because I mean, a lot of people immediately imagine McDonald's or yeah. cookies or the things that are obviously processed food. What are some of the less obvious processed foods that we really encounter every day? Even when you take an apple, you know, as you dry it, if you add any preservatives, that's actually a processed food. But is minimally processed as compared to McDonald's, for example. And then you go all the way up to ultra-processed foods. And those are anything from candy, like Twinkies. I actually, i never seen them, but I'm told that they <laughs> You don't. But um, Mars bars or the buns, like the burger buns, or um, bread that can last for six months. But if you go to Dwayne Reed and you, you buy those things that are like canned soups, canned soup is totally processed food or the spread like margarine or those uh, self spreads like whipped cream cheese, that is processed food, uh, processed cheese. One thing that I've been fighting for years over is um, string cheese. All children eat it. In the United States, you want a snack? Here, have some mozzarella stick. That is actually processed food and is not cheese. Even though it says cheese, it's not. It can't really be processed cheese to a, le- a level of processing where only fifty percent of what's in the stick is actual cheese. Everything else is additive, additives, emulsifiers, gums, preservatives. Okay. No string cheese. Yogurt. We were talking about yogurt before, mm-hmm. right? There's there's good quality yogurt that is just literally milk, sometimes cream, and live bacteria. And then there's processed yogurt where that looks bubblegum pink, right? Or any kind of bizarre color. There's a lot of sugar in all sorts of additives. So if yogurt contains more than three or four ingredients in the ingredients, really read like chemicals that this processed food and it's really not good for you so like a dan and yogurt even though they promote themselves as being healthy dan and activa you, you would say that's a processed food and off the list i i don't know if all the products contain adjectives 
But if they do, then yeah, it's processed food. I mean, maybe they have some varieties of Danone that is actually not adulterated in any way. I'm not, I haven't found any. So I would say, yes, Danone is probably not the best kind of yogurt you can eat. Okay. So we now know a little bit about what we should eat and shouldn't eat. How did we get this way? In the book, you, you talk very fascinatingly about the evolution of man and how food allows for the evolution of our brain and food actually allows us to turn into the sentient, capable homo sapiens that we currently are. Can you take us through that journey a little bit? Yes. So the human brain really developed based on genes and the interaction between our genes and the environment. In environment back then, which is really millions and millions of years, where men were broadly very similar to apes, um, include a diet and try not to get killed. Right? So whatever the environment provided um, interacted with their DNA to stimulate growth or lack of growth. And all the foods that our ancestors were actively looking for and putting into their bodies really altered the way that brain developed took place over literally millions of years. And so we need to think about our early ancestors as very unsophisticated humans, intellectually speaking. Their brains were much smaller. They were not nearly as well connected. Entire parts of the brains, like the neocortex, was not yet formed uh, with the developing. And so these, these early humans were actually not as coordinated. You know, they couldn't go hunting. There's no way that they could even build weapons back then. So they would literally feed themselves of things that they could find easily, like plants, uh, bugs, fish that they could catch, or, or snails. So the, the diet was very primitive in some ways and, and very similar to that of apes. And as they got access to better and better food, then they really learned, they got smarter. And so they learned to, to find more foods like eggs. Because our ancestors most likely lived next to rivers, right, to, to have access to water all the time. And so you could access fish and um, animals to live in water very easily. So, of course, the brain developed based on that, which is in part why we need so much uh, omega-3 uh, fatty acid for our brain. That's fascinating. So in essence, it was this feed forward. So we began as these less capable individuals because our brains were less capable. Um, therefore, we couldn't hunt as effectively. And as we got better and better food sources, it developed our brain, which then allowed us to be more ingenious and smarter and better at capturing better food sources, which then fed our brain. Yeah. So at the beginning, everything was plant-based, right? Because plants can't move. So once you find a good source, that you can just feed yourself for a really long time. And that's why very early humans had enormous teeth and enormous jaws because they really had to like... Masticate. Chew, yeah, all day long, basically. And then they, they progressively got access to uh, nutritionally rich foods like eggs and fish. And as they got bigger and smarter, they also learned to follow predators. And so they most likely had access to the carcass, to whatever the predators would not eat, which is like the bone marrow. So our ancestors learned to literally break bones and eat the, the marrow inside, which is actually very rich in, in nutrients that, that nourish the brain, first and foremost. So they'd basically steal somebody else's kill, the bones that were yeah. left behind, and yeah. suck at the marrow. Yeah, and they could, you know, just break the skull 
and eat the brain uh, of the animal that was left there. And so that's how they, they literally get bigger and bigger. And then they eventually learn um, to hunt. But that happened much later in the history of mankind. And then they learn to cook. And that also allowed to, to eat more and more food. They were more easily absorbable once cooked. But so really the, the progression is uh, plant-based first, right? Plus breast milk, of course. Uh, grains were also part of the menu when they could find them. And then fish and eggs, and then eventually meat, wild meat. And then much later on with agriculture, everything changed, agriculture and farming. It's amazing. And fish really was this turning point. As you sort of reference in the book, fish was this turning point that really allowed the kind of explosion of our brains. We mm. all of a sudden had all this DHA, which you just fascinatedly pointed out is possibly why we need DHA, because in our yeah. evolutionary development, we were eating a lot of fish. That was the external source. So our brain became developed with this source of fish alongside of it, with the presumption that we'd always have the source of fish to create the brain that it was creating. Yeah. The brain that was evolving as a result of having this fish. And so we now need fish because that was part of our evolutionary development to, mm -hmm. to exist alongside consumption. That's fascinating. I agree. I, I think I think evolution is insane. It's been incredible. You always learn something new and it's just not obvious. It's just not obvious. It's also fascinating the idea that you started talking about genes and how the environment turns on our genes or food turns on our genes. And that's part of what influenced our development. And that's something that we now see as we're these, you know, fully formed human beings that we are. We still have a genetic environment, an internal genetic environment that is triggered and encouraged and shaped by the food that we eat. Um, a lot of people who listen to this podcast are familiar with epigenetics, the idea yeah. that we have a genome, a DNA that determines who we are, but then there's environmental factors that turn on and off genes. And right. food is actually one of those epigenetic factors that's really powerful in modulating what genes are turned on and turned off. Yes. And yeah. that's also, it's incredible. Now then, everybody knows intuitively that the foods you eat change your brain. I mean, everybody's always known that if you're having a bad mood and, and you have a piece of chocolate, chocolate. Bed, right? if you feel really tired and you drink a cup of coffee, you wake up. I mean, everybody knows that intuitively. So can you leave our listeners with any last pieces of advice on how to eat for their brains? I would say just take care of your brain. It's really in your power and it takes discipline, it takes determination, but it's totally doable. And the benefits are really for life. You know, I always say treat your brain like your best friend. You know, and just think, um, this thing I'm about to eat may or may not become part of the very fabric of my brain. Do I want my brain to look like this? Do I not want my brain to look like that? And I think that really has a big, a big impact. Wow. So we talk about the fact that we are what we eat and maybe we need to actually take a moment and think about that. Literally, we are literally the molecules that we're consuming from this Twinkie, you know, our brain, our lipid bio, you know, our lipid bilayers, our cell membranes are going to be made out of these fats. These fats are going to actually take the place of the fats that are in our cell membranes because right. yeah. we need to get fat in our cell membrane from somewhere. Okay. And do you want to eat this fat or that fat? Do you want it to be avocado or do you want to be Twinkie that you're made out of? Yeah, just really think about food as something that has a function. 
inside your body and your brain. And some foods and nutrients will really optimize your cognitive health for, for the years to come. And some other foods and nutrients will have the totally opposite effect, setting people on a path towards mental decline and cognitive deterioration. And, you know, when you and I are talking, and I'm sure that your diet is super healthy, you're a biohacker, and I think so many people who do podcasts and listen to podcasts are actually really educated already. I think the problem is more for people who do not have access to this information. And if you go, even in New Jersey, you can see immediately you cross the border and people just eat differently. And, and I think it's really about educating everybody and really trying to spread the message as, as wide and far as we can that food has a strong impact on health. And we really, we really need to pay more attention as a society. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you for letting us inside your head. Ooh, thank you. Thank and you inside your stomach and inside your brain. Yeah. How did you end up doing this as a neuroscientist? So I formed this company, Muse. So we make a clinical grade EEG, four channels, two frontal, two temporal, and it tracks your brain activity in real time and gives you real-time feedback. And the most common application is a meditation tool. So it gives you real-time feedback on your brain during meditation. My husband has been ta- talking to me about you forever. Oh, that's too funny. He was telling me just the other day. He's like, how do, you th- how do you feel about portable EEG? Is it something you could use in your research? It's like, as you know, I should really learn more about it. You know, I would love to learn more about it. That's too funny. Amazing. Hi. I should tell him. Hello. Hello. I'm actually, I am interested in, in mirroring. So from a meditation tool, it's used by literally hundreds of thousands of people trying to meditate, both by individuals, just average consumers and clinicians. It's like Mayo Clinic's been using it as a clinical grade EEG. Lots of neuroscientists have been using it in fun ways because we can measure ERPs. We can do all sorts of things in situ and in broad scale. Wow, that's cool. So that was Dr. Lisa Moscone, PhD neuroscientist, nutritionist, and author of the amazingly informative book, Brain Food, How to Eat to Improve Your Cognitive Power. So if you're fascinated by the information that she shared today, she shares reams of studies, specific recommendations as to exactly the kinds of foods you should be eating, um, meal planning, menus, questionnaires to help you eat for your cognitive power. Thank you so much for informing us today, Lisa. Thank you so much for having me. To learn more about Dr. Lisa Moscone's work, you can pick up her amazing book, Brain Food, The Surprising Science of Eating for Cognitive Power at your favorite bookseller. It's chock full of studies, facts, menus, and meal plans for how to eat for your brain. You can also watch the full episode of Dr. Lisa and I speaking at arielgarten.com. That's me, A-R-I-E-L-G-A-R-T-E-N.com. There's even more tips and info. And if you're interested in learning more about Muse in order to get closer to your brain, you can check it out at choosemuse.com. It's not only used by neuroscientists, but also by hundreds and thousands of people to start or enhance their meditation practice by getting real-time, easy feedback on your brain during meditation. If you're curious about it, you can also use the discount code UNTANGLE15. For all of you out there, keep your neurons sparkling. And next week, Patricia is back with more Untangle 